By the spring of 1972, the Vietnam War, in which my U.S. Army brother and I both served, was supposed to be winding down. President Richard Nixon's commitment to Vietnamization, training, equipping, and supporting the South Vietnamese government and military was well underway. In February 1972, the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne, the last U.S. ground combat division in the Republic of Vietnam, headed home. By March of 72, U.S. combat troop levels in-country had dropped from a high of over 500,000 American soldiers and Marines in 1969 to just two Army brigades guarding fixed installations and a few thousand U.S. advisors embedded with South Vietnamese forces. With President Nixon facing re-election and making overtures to Beijing and Moscow, North Vietnam's General Vo Nguyen Giap convinced the Politburo in Hanoi that the spring of 1972 was the perfect time to strike a devastating blow against the U.S.-supported government in Saigon. Giap chose noon Thursday, 30 March, the eve of Good Friday and Easter weekend, the holiest of holidays for Christians in South Vietnam, as H-hour. His intent? was to make this assault an even greater propaganda victory than Tet 1968, and he nearly succeeded. Tens of thousands of North Vietnamese troops and hundreds of tanks and armored vehicles poured across the demilitarized zone and raced toward a strategic bridge U.S. Navy Seabees had built over the Qua Viet River near the town of Dong Ha, less than eight miles south of the DMZ. It was there that a battalion of Vietnamese Marines and a handful of American advisors were all that stood in the way of the enemy. Among them, U.S. Marine Captain John Ripley. He was determined to keep the North Vietnamese Army from crossing the river. The raw courage and personal resolve he showed has become a legend in the annals of American military history. To make this riveting documentary, our War Stories team returned to Vietnam with my dear departed Marine friend, Colonel John Ripley. We retraced the epic battle and walked the ground we both defended when we'd served in 3rd Battalion, 3rd Marine Regiment. You'll also meet the South Vietnamese Marine Battalion Commander, Major Nguyen Bin, whose men fought to the death beside Captain Ripley in Dong Ha during the Easter 1972 offensive. If you're not moved by the accounts of the eyewitness participants in this bloody fight, seek immediate medical attention because... Your heart may have already stopped. That's an order. This is the Quaviet River, located just seven miles south of the demilitarized zone, the DMZ that once separated North and South Vietnam. Good evening, I'm Oliver North. This is War Stories coming to you from the city of Dong Ha in the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. In the history of warfare, bridges have often been the stuff of legend. The bridge over the River Kwai, or the bridge too far at Arnhem. In 1972, on Easter weekend, this bridge became the choke point in another epic clash as tens of thousands of North Vietnamese Army troops invaded South Vietnam. To advance, they had to cross this river. Standing in their way, a badly battered battalion of South Vietnamese Marines, less than 50 cast-off American tanks, and two U.S. military advisors. As the defenders were about to be overrun, one advisor, Marine Captain John Ripley, decided he had to act. 
What transpired that day is now enshrined in the annals of American military history. Tonight, War Stories brings John Ripley back to the scene of this bloody battle. Stay with us for eyewitness accounts of the furious fight for the bridge at Dong Ha. To every man, there comes that moment when he is asked to do something very special. What a pity if he is found unprepared, unwilling, or unknowledgeable of performing that duty. We're here for a purpose. We're going to become leaders of the world's best fighting force. While still a boy in Radford, Virginia, John Walter Ripley dreamed of becoming an officer of Marines. Right out of high school, he enlisted in the Corps, and a year later, he received an appointment to the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis. It's a tough four years for me, very tough. My thoughts at the time were, I hope I can be as good as these people around me. just thought a career in the Navy would be exciting, and that's when I fixed my sights on the Naval Academy. New Jersey native Bill Heine joined Ripley in 1958 as a midshipman at the Academy. Everybody participated in sports. We had regular parades, but we also had military formations. I do vividly remember Kennedy because in 1961, all of us at the Naval Academy marched in his inauguration parade in Washington. If not, what it was one of the coldest days on record in Washington, and it felt like the rifle butt was frozen to our hand. Values, the standards, the discipline, uh, one could not leave there uninspired. When you graduate in 1962, had you ever heard of Vietnam at that point? There was very little feeling at the time that any of us would end up in such a place. But the 16,000 troops Kennedy sent to Vietnam would soon be substantially increased by his successor, Lyndon Johnson. I have today ordered to Vietnam the Air Mobile Division. Tonight, young Americans die in a distant land. We increased our fighting force to 190,000 men. By 1967, almost half a million Americans were fighting in Vietnam, including now Captain Ripley, leading a rifle company in the 3rd Battalion, 3rd Marines. We knew that this was not going to be a short flash in the pan. We began from that point expanding into the entire I-Corps. I-Corps was South Vietnam's first line of defense against invasion from the communist north. Bordering the demilitarized zone, or DMZ, the military region was called the Ring of Steel, with airfields and fire bases, including Can Tien, the rock pile, and Camp Carroll. The Qua Viet River was a natural defensive barrier. On its south bank, the city of Dong Ha. Yeah, Dong Ha is the northernmost town in South Vietnam. Marine Colonel John Greider Miller retired to become an historian and author of the book, The Bridge at Dong Ha. There wasn't much there of strategic value except for the bridge over the Qua Viet River. John, how did this bridge come to be built? This bridge was built by uh, a CB battalion, uh, MCB 62, including one of my classmates, uh, Bill Heine. I initially went to uh, Vietnam in 1968. I was the operations officer of the battalion, and that job was uh, the responsibility for all the construction. The bridge was 437 feet long, in which they drove steel piles into the river bottom, and then on top of that, they ran anywhere from 60 to 80-foot girders, and then there was a wearing surface put on top of that. 
Now, as you can see, this is a concrete bridge. The CB bridge was 100% steel. There was enough steel up there for a battleship. And the idea on that was it would be very difficult to destroy the bridge. Heine, Ripley, and all of us who served in I-Corps knew all too well the DMZ was demilitarized in name only. Our combat base was within artillery range of the DMZ, and they would fire rockets or mortars into our camp. We, of course, had had any number of attacks by fire. We used to say, our business is killing and business is good. Back in the States, the country was divided. Some could no longer stomach the war. And in 1968, Richard Nixon won the presidency, promising to bring the boys home. His plan? The program of Vietnamization. In this administration, we are Vietnamizing the search for peace. It was designed to turn the war over to the Vietnamese. After 1971, most of the U.S. units were out, so the advisors were the main U.S. presence. From a high of 550,000 in 1968 to less than 100,000 by the spring of 72, the Americans still in Southeast Asia worked mainly to support the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, the Arvin. Scattered throughout the country among Vietnamese brigades and battalions, these American advisors formed a strong bond with their fellow brothers-in-arms who called the Americans Covans. In Vietnamese, Covan means trusted friend. Why did you volunteer to go back? There's a great compelling force to get back where your brother Marines are and to participate. I was commander of 3rd Battalion and Ripley was assigned to us as advisor. 35-year-old Major Bin was a combat veteran, serving nine tough years in the Vietnamese Marines, or VMC. His battalion, along with Coban Ripley, was posted just south of Dong Ha. I was tremendously fortunate in ending up in what was, without question, the Vietnamese Marines' best battalion, uh, the good old Soy Bin. Sea Wolves. The Sea Wolves, as then Major Ben first explained to me. We chose the Sea Wolf because we are Marines and no animal is fiercer than the wolf. They guarded their covans, if you will, their advisors, better than anyone else. February 1972, Lieutenant Colonel Jerry Turley was one of the lonely few going the other way, returning to Saigon on his second tour as a senior advisor to the VMC. Just weeks later, on 29 March, Colonel Turley flew north in a Huey for a recon mission over I-Corps. I was on an orientation tour. Got in the Jeep the next morning, and we drove six miles south to I-2. Met with the commanding officer, received an unbelievably good brief. After the brief, we went over to the mess hall and had lunch. We walked outside of the mess hall, stepped out the screen door, and the world fell apart. Heavy, heavy, heavy artillery fire. There's no doubt that it was the beginning of an attack. Unknown to the South Vietnamese defenders and their American advisors, three NVA divisions, including 150 tanks and 300 artillery pieces, are poised to launch the largest military offensive since the war began. And this bridge becomes target number one. That's next on War Stories. It was exactly 12 o'clock, 30 March. 
the Easter Offensive was starting. All the northern fire bases were under very heavy attack. Three days before Holy Sunday, 1972, under the command of North Vietnamese General Nguyen Vo Giap, the communists rained artillery down on the South Vietnamese Army Marines and their American advisors. What was General Giap's objective? The Easter Offensive was uh, designed to cut the country in two. Take it to the north, middle of the country, and also to go into Saigon. This was a gopher broke on the part of Vo uh, Nguyen Giap, who hoped to end the war with this one uh, invasion. All of those units across the front began to report troops moving toward their position. Massive amounts. They were raining a thousand rounds plus a day on our position. Missouri native Lieutenant Joel Eisenstein commanded a detachment of an air and naval gunfire liaison company known as Anglico. When the offensive began, he was co-located with Lieutenant Colonel Turley at the Tactical Operations Center at I-2, just six miles south of Dong Ha. He had come up to our AO, our area of operation, to uh, inspect and familiarize himself. Remember, I'm only going to be there two more days. I worked for an Army colonel. When the battle got very difficult, he said, I order you to assume command. And I said, sir, I can't do that. He said, so I order you to do that. He turned command of the Tactical Operations Center and essentially the whole 3rd Arvin Division over to Colonel Turley. The visiting Covan from Saigon was suddenly crucial to the defense of I-Corps against 25,000 enemy troops, then the largest communist offensive of the entire war. We were losing our butt. John, the French called this Cantien, the Hill of Angels. What happened here in the Easter Offensive 1972? In the Easter Offensive 1972, the 3rd Arvin Division had the 57th Regiment occupying this area. This place was being hit by hundreds of rounds of North Vietnamese Army artillery, rocket fire. Where was it coming from? Most of it came from the demilitarized zone, the entire frontage in front of us here. The South Vietnamese began to abandon it. Less than five miles away, another firebase, Alpha 2, came under heavy attack. I had a team of spotters under the command of David Brueggemann. Brueggemann started calling me right away. It didn't take long to realize that he had to get off that fire base. Finally, on the morning of the 1st, I went to Turley and said, please, Colonel, give me permission. And this is where I really make my first step into active involvement. Turley said, I don't know what my duties are, but if you need a helicopter and one's around. I said, go get him. Joel jumped into two Army Huey helicopters, flew up there, set down, incoming artillery everywhere. All hell broke loose. The NVA blew up everything that they could. There was a company of NVA that had come around behind the fire basin and started firing at us. As Joel was putting everybody into the helicopter, Brueggemann was hit in the back of the head. We carried Brueggemann to the helicopter. I couldn't find one of my troops, Corporal Worth was missing. Worth didn't come out, didn't come out, didn't come out. Uh, they couldn't wait any longer. And as we lifted off, we started catching fire from the NVA. Dave didn't make it. He, uh, he died on the medevac. Corporal Worth is still missing. 2 April, Easter Sunday, the Ring of Steel was collapsing. The Army Arvin units were beginning to abandon their positions all the way along the line. 
As the NVA rolled toward the key city of Dong Ha, Turley knew it would fall unless reinforced by the Marines of Major Bin's 3rd Battalion. If they tried to cross the Dong Ha River, they would face my firepower. It's the only battalion we had left. He conferred with Major Bin's brigade commander, Colonel Din. I went to the brigade commander and said, uh, you've got to hold Dong Ha. He said, I can't do that. Every American had laid his butt on the line. And here's a Vietnamese brigade commander who says, I have to call Saigon. There had to be a shocker. Yes, sir. I walked back into the bunker. I said, guys, it's over. We've done everything we can. And about that time, a hand reaches over and touches me on the shoulder and said, Colonel Din, we take Dung Hong. Wow. That's when they moved Ripley up. We moved here very quickly and established ourselves at Dong Hob. The Commandant of the Vietnamese Marines ordered that our Marine Battalion would hold and die. Those are his exact words. As Ripley, Ben, and the 3rd Battalion took their positions in Dong Ha, Turley received an even bleaker report. The NVA was assaulting across the DMZ with much more than just infantry. When does it become apparent the North Vietnamese have launched an armored offensive across the DMZ? I received a telephone call from one of the advisors and said, hey, there's armor up here. And I said, oh, come on. How many? They said, 10 54s and 20 PT-76s. Turley was talking to me and several other Marine officers. And he said, here's what's going to happen. He said, they're going to come right down the middle and run down Highway 1 as fast as they can to see if they can get over the bridge. If they could get across the bridge with their armor, it would put the people into absolute panic. The battle was the bridge. Win or lose, it's on the bridge. With refugees and dispirited South Vietnamese troops clogging the roads, Ripley receives the message, at all costs, keep the enemy on that side of the river. How he does it when War Stories returns. situation was deteriorating rapidly on all fronts and it looked very, very bleak. We thought the fights were still west and north of us until early Sunday morning when we found out that a tank unit was proceeding south with a significant number of troops. The people are in Mathis We had 25 to 30,000 people on the roads with baskets, dogs, buffaloes, you name it. When the North Vietnamese Army attacked, they came down this road, Highway 1. 20,000 troops, 200 tanks, and four regiments of artillery are all headed for Dong Ha. Now facing the onslaught of an NVA armored division, Turley called Ripley on the radio. He said, John, you've got tanks inbound. You've got to stop them. My answer was, I have nothing here to stop tanks whatsoever. I must drop this bridge. His response was, I don't have that kind of authority, but you got to drop that bridge. It, it was it, it, either blow the bridge or we lose the battle. The authority to blow up a bridge has to come from core level. Turley called back to Saigon to get permission. And so when I says, we're going to blow the Dongha Bridge, they said, you can't do that. We're going to make the counterattack. I order you not to blow the bridge. They just didn't realize there'd be no counterattack if that bridge stayed up. I said, I'm sorry, screw you. I got to do it. 
When Colonel Turley tells you over the radio, gotta blow the bridge, does he know how difficult this task is gonna be? It was entered in the log that after he gave me the order to do it, he turned to another Marine there and said, I've just sent John Ripley to his death. I did not expect to see him alive. Maneuvering under fire, Ben Ripley and the 3rd Battalion linked up with the 20th Tank Battalion and their U.S. Army advisor, Major Jim Smock. Jim Smock was truly one of the most critical elements of this whole success. Jim was just as anxious to get to that bridge as I was. We both uh, said we have got to get up there. He said, uh, look, Jarhead, a familiar term, I don't know anything about explosives, but I can sure help you, and he sure as hell did. I needed two tanks to get me up there. Um, Jim Smock and my own battalion commander, Ben, made that happen. And we raced up the road, arriving here at the bridge. While Major Ben and his Marines provided covering fire on the south bank of the river, Ripley and Smock made a mad dash for the bridge. I told Ripley what I told my Marines. If you die, we all die, but we will never retreat. My men brought the explosives to the bridge. He sent up a combination of boxes of TNT and mercifully uh, satchel chargers, which is plastic explosives, and of course, fuses. And they had about 500 pounds of explosives, so now it's down to two guys under heavy fire. Major Spock reached up and grabbed this fence, which had razor wire on it with his hands, and was pulling this fence down with his bare hands. That's when Ripley uh, gets his old Army's ranger training and begins to climb up there. I went out under the bridge, uh, hand over hand, swung my heels up. I had to drop down and swing over and leap over and grab the adjacent I-beam next to me and then hand walk back. Ripley was exposed most of the time. So they began to uh, fire at me. Throughout the time Ripley's under the bridge, I'm getting calls, we order you not to blow the bridge. We had no choice. Uh, if he can't blow the bridge, the battle is over. Colonel Ripley, as you're clinging beneath the bridge under fire, what's going through your mind? I was convinced that I wouldn't leave this bridge alive. More on the furious fight for the bridge at Dong Ha when War Stories returns. Easter 1972. Across the country, Americans came together to celebrate the holiday. But in Vietnam, two American advisors, Captain John Ripley and Major Jim Smock, were fighting for their lives, trying to blow up the bridge at Dong Ha. An enemy armor division with 200 tanks was trying to cross the span, their only gateway deep into South Vietnam. I was the only person here with that kind of demolitions background making it all the more apparent to me that I had to do this or it simply wouldn't get done. When we were fighting at the Dong Ha River, the more the North Vietnamese threw into battle, the more my troops inflicted casualties on them. Major Bin's 3rd Battalion dug in to provide covering fire for Ripley and Spock. Lieutenant Long, one of Bin's combat platoon commanders, was prepared to fight to the death. I have a duty to take up arms to defend my country of South Vietnam, and most of my comrades were very experienced in combat. Ripley's Marines were firing across the river and suppressing the NVA who was running around on the northern side of the river. 
The level of fire comes in as unbelievable. They increase their fire with not just small arms, but with the tank. A tank we had disabled began to fire in that direction. Uh, he didn't penetrate because the angle was so severe, it ricocheted off and detonated against the bank. The For the next two and a half hours, two and a half hours, Smock is handling these 50-pound boxes of ammunition up to Ripley, and he's very carefully sliding them down between the channels of I, the I-beam. God bless Jim Smock. He would hand the explosives up over the wire in the fence and rip himself to bits in the process. How many sets of explosives did you prime in that bridge? As I recall, there were 12 beams uh, forming six channels. Uh, so I put a minimum of six. Ripley could only hope the six cases of TNT would be enough to blow the bridge built three years earlier by his Annapolis classmate, Bill Heine. They were really strong girders, 80 foot uh, long. 36 inch deep that were a couple feet apart. And he staggered them all so that they were spaced so that they would split the wide flange beam in two rather than just crumple it up. He went out with his rifle, full canteens, cartridge belt, and helmet because he might have to drop in the river and then survive somehow. You're carrying so much weight that if you'd fallen off of been shot and dropped into the water, what would have happened? Well, I believe it's rather obvious I, I would have sunk. I left my radio operator at the bunker so he could observe and report back what was happening. For a period of time, I don't know if he's alive or dead. At the same time, I was fighting with Saigon, the fact that I had ordered the destruction of the Don Ha Bridge. Saigon, for two days, would not acknowledge this battle. Everybody south of us in the higher command seemed to be in shock. Headquarters in Saigon may have been surprised, but Washington knew well in advance the communists were planning an attack. Our national command authorities, specifically the White House, knew about it a year before this. You're saying the White House knew that the Easter Offensive of 72 was going to happen. That's exactly what uh, Kissinger says in his memoirs. The words White House National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger used were, quote, the enemy offensive of 1972 had long been anticipated, and, quote, this was Hanoi's last throw of the dice. At the time, Nixon was distracted with the 1972 presidential campaign. Both Nixon and Kissinger were convinced the NVA attack would fail. Does anybody say it's an election year back in America? No, never. Never was never brought up. I think that we were professional in our soldiering and we were saying, we just hope they don't come across to us. But they did? In swarms, sir, in swarms. With the explosives now set on the bridge, Ripley wired the charges. And he didn't have a crimper, which we all use for demolitions, to crimp the blasting cap onto the fuse. So I used what's called a jawbone method. I put the open blasting cap backwards in my mouth and stuck the fuse in and moved it back far enough to crimp it with my teeth. If he jawboned too far down, it would explode inside his head. After he rigged the fuses and lit them off, Smock had found some electrical fuses. And the rule of thumb is back up your charge. So I went back out and did that for each channel. So now I had both time fuses burning and the electric uh, fuses, I was double primed. It took him two or three hours to rig the bridge once he got started. He was running strictly on adrenaline. 
When I finally finished that, I moved back uh, to the fence, got over the fence, and was so exhausted I could barely move. There was a Jeep blown over on its side. It had a battery under the seat. I went over and cut the wire, cleaned the terminals, touched it to the terminals, and nothing happened. Switched the wires again and again. His chances of blowing that bridge up, almost impossible. And he was just about in despair that the bridge would not fall. At this point, I was out of ideas. I had no idea how I was going to detonate this other than to wait for the time fuses. And I was not sure that the enemy would wait. Everything that blood and bravery can do has been done. Will it be enough? Find out when War Stories returns. For three hours, Marine Captain John Ripley and Army Major Jim Smock risked everything in a desperate attempt to blow the bridge at Dong Ha. On the other side, an enemy armor division was lined up and ready to cross the span. For one brief moment, Ripley feared failure. At this point, I was out of ideas. And you're guessing that those time fuses aren't going to burn down while you're out there. I didn't know what next to, to do as I was running. Running is fast as I could run, along with uh, Jim Smock, but not as fast as Jim. He turned around and you bleep bleep jarhead, <laughs> what the hell's wrong with you, move. Suddenly refugees came down from Route 9. That's when you see the little girl. There's this very destitute, injured woman with an infant strapped to her chest. And behind her was a little, tiny, tiny little girl. They were moving right into a very dangerous area that was being hit by artillery fire and mortar fire. I knew that if this bridge blew up, they would become casualties. So I ran out there trying to snatch up this little girl, and I snatched her up on the run, and I had her in one arm, I had my weapon in the other hand. I'm just suddenly airborne. And I was literally flying through the air, holding this little girl. Then I realized the bridge had blown. I managed to land on my back, I could see straight up, and there are huge chunks of the bridge just turning slowly in the air, ripped up. And at that point, I uh, called on my radio and reported uh, the bridge is blown. I'll have to come by way of Tijuana now. The relief that everybody knew that the bridge was blown and that we'd stopped the attack, that rippled throughout the whole force in the northern area. And it allowed us to get our momentum and say, hey, maybe, maybe we can hold. We were in big trouble anyway. We would have been in bigger trouble if tanks had come across that bridge. Morale went up when the bridge went up. It disrupted their entire plan. They lost their momentum. As a result, they began refocusing on how they could get south. Though 200 tanks could no longer cross the Quaviet River, NVA infantry did whatever necessary to reach the south bank, crawling over battle debris and wading through the water. Ripley was unaware how badly the battlefield was deteriorating. He was not aware that we had just lost content. Over on the western flank, Sarge and Nui Bajo had been abandoned. The two remote fire bases were overrun, leaving two American advisors, Major Walt Boomer and Captain Ray Smith, stranded. And it was about to get a whole lot worse. The reports came through the advisor net. They essentially said one shocking transmission, Camp Carroll has surrendered. 
He couldn't believe that you're going to take 2,500 men, 26 guns, the biggest artillery pieces that we have, and simply surrender. John, this is Camp Carroll, the biggest fire support base south of the demilitarized zone. The location was terribly important to us because we could range every Marine unit, all friendly units, uh, from this one plateau. From Tiger Tooth Mountain, the highest peak there, uh, around to the north, you can see the Razorback Ridge, you can see the rock pile. How did the NVA attack this position? They attacked the position predominantly from both the west, from Quezon, as well as from the demilitarized zone itself. They surrounded Camp Carroll, and the minute Camp Carroll uh, put the flags up, the white flags, all the enemies stood up, shoulder to shoulder, the entire perimeter, virtually surrounded. After the bridge is blown, where did you move your battalion to? I discussed with Ripley that since they couldn't cross the bridge, they would attack us from our left flank. The NVA tanks had to look for another crossing site. Stalled tanks make perfect targets, and Anglico's Lieutenant Joel Eisenstein knew he now had the chance to unleash naval gunfire. The Buchanan was a ship that was supporting us at the time. They could bring all of its guns on that one long line of tanks. So Rip started calling in naval gunfire missions. Captain Ripley was calling us for fire support. So Ripley would tell me, you know, I've got four tanks and here's where they are. And I would then relay that information to the ships and we would fire. Ripley would direct my fire and say, okay, I need it. Left, right, up, down, drop 50, fire. But North Vietnamese General Giap was determined to take the south and tens of thousands of his tenacious foot soldiers continued to pour across the river. One could not deny the feeling that we're going to stay here and we're going to die here. There's more war stories on the Easter Offensive coming to you from the Dong Ha Bridge. Don't go away. A lot of people think that this battle ended at the bridge. It didn't. It kept going for day after day. After it certainly day. did. The, the battle, one could say, became even more intense. The destruction of the Dong Ha Bridge dealt a severe blow to North Vietnamese General Giap's armored invasion. But the 25,000 NVA soldiers already committed were soon reinforced by tens of thousands of fresh troops who continued to pour across the Qua Viet River into South Vietnam. The enemy now very intent on seizing Dong Ha, holding it by infantry action until they found a means to get not just armor, but all the rest of the anti-aircraft material, loads and loads of trucks with ordnance over the river. John, on 6 April, you have a major engagement right outside this pagoda. Tell me about it. This was the location that the enemy finally approached uh, after we had blown the bridge. We were trying to hold them back, both ourselves and the tankers. Suddenly, they uh, started a very heavy ground and mortar attack. There were a number of uh, correspondents who were trying to film this, and they all surrounded me. You're watching footage shot by those journalists during that fierce battle. My radio operator, Nah, was killed. Also, Jim Smock was wounded in that engagement. There's a photograph that shows you running right there, right outside this pagoda. 
I managed to get two casualties aboard one of these uh, personnel carriers and it rushed off. I'm running to try to get him to stop so I can put the rest of the casualties on there. And that's when that picture was taken. A mortar round hitting right behind him. Hit that and knocked me down and it knocked the cameraman down. At the Pagoda, Major Ben's 3rd Battalion was in hand-to-hand -hand combat. The spirit of my troops was extraordinary. They stayed with me to fight to the bitter end. His battalion went from 600. When they came back to us, they had less than 50 people. After days of NVA troops swarming across the border, senior U.S. commanders finally acknowledged the enemy offensive was aimed at Saigon. In Washington, President Nixon unleashed U.S. air power against North Vietnam, and on April 15th, he ordered the bombing of Hanoi itself. On the ground, South Vietnamese Marines and soldiers, along with their U.S. advisors, were digging in for a fight, including Captain Ray Smith and Major Walt Boomer. The two Marines had made an epic escape back to friendly lines. They were so fatigued at the end that Ray Smith had taken his rucksack and tied Boomer to a strap on it, and Boomer was following along behind. But by the end of April, the operation center at I-2 was threatened, and Lieutenant Colonel Jerry Turley and Lieutenant Joel Eisenstein were inside. We were in the process of being overrun up at the TOC and I-2, and then we evacuated, and then we hurriedly got down to the Quang Tree Citadel. This is the Quang Tree Citadel, built in 1802. This feudal fortress, just seven miles from the Dong Ha Bridge, was a key objective of the NVA during the 1972 Easter Offensive. By 1 May, a month after the invasion began, NVA troops were at the walls of the fortress. They fired a marking round on each corner of the citadel which was essentially a warning that we have you locked in. When the North Vietnamese arrived here, they arrived here in great force, and they managed to overwhelm the Citadel simply by numbers, uh, and the Citadel was lost. But the Marines fell back and established a line just south of Quang Tree, and it was there that General Japs' all-or-nothing invasion into I-Corps was finally stopped. Suffering almost 100,000 casualties, the NVA had moved only 16 miles south of the border. Seeing the high cost of failure, Hanoi removed Jap from command. He had failed in his attempt to take over the south. South Vietnamese forces suffered almost 40,000 casualties, and almost 200 Americans made the ultimate sacrifice. The wonderful camaraderie and operational expertise that we had both U.S. Marines and Vietnamese Marines together. Certainly Jim Smock and his tankers, his initiative, together with the great Wolves of the Sea, stopped that offensive without question. Was it worth it? What you and all those other advisors did? Absolutely. I saw, when I served, some very fine soldiers and Marines, brave, serving their country to the best of their ability. There's more war stories just ahead. Don't go away. The finest people I've ever known are the people we're talking about here today. In 1972, Joel Eisenstein returned home to Missouri and became a lawyer. But the 12 months he served in Vietnam, 
remain with him to this day. The events are events that you never get out of your mind, that they, you know, they are with you the rest of your life. Uh, particularly my episode with Brugman. I, I think about David every day. Uh, I think about Worth every day. When the North took over the South in 1975, they jailed me for 12 years. After surviving in a brutal communist re-education camp, Major Bin was released and made his way to the United States. The close bond he forged in combat with his American advisor remains to this day. <laughs> Good to see you, old friend. <laughs> Great to see you. In 2002, Colonel Bin was awarded the U.S. Silver Star for his valor during the Easter Offensive. Highest award an American can award a foreign national. The Seabees have a very close uh, relationship with the Marines. Bill Heine, John Ripley's Annapolis classmate who'd built the bridge at Dong Ha, served several tours in Vietnam and remained in the Navy Reserves until 1995. Today, we all find a lot of humor in the fact that one of my classmates built the bridge and, and as they say, some dumb jarhead came along and blew it up three years later. <laughs> I was told you're either going to go to jail or you're going to get a medal. And you're probably going to go to jail. For his daring and audacious leadership during the Easter Offensive, Colonel Turley didn't go to jail. He went on to serve 32 years in the Corps, retiring in 1981. Back in 72, while still fresh from the battle, he wrote a citation for John Ripley, which resulted in the Marine captain being awarded our nation's second highest honor for valor, the Navy Cross. He was the pivot point in halting the 1972 Easter Offensive to save the country at that time. One man makes a difference. Hundreds upon hundreds of Marines that I know would have done virtually the same thing. The bridge was there, the enemy was there, and I was there. Very simple. I was obligated to do what I did. Captain Ripley's ordeal at the bridge at Dong Ha occurred at a time when most Americans had already left Vietnam. Though the outcome of the war was in doubt, he and a select few volunteered to continue with the mission. The extraordinary courage to do so, like that of their fellow Vietnamese Marines and soldiers, was forged in a profound and unshakable belief in duty, honor, and commitment to one another. Theirs is a war story that deserves to be told. I'm Oliver North. Good night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.